For our scripture reading this morning, I want to read three short portions of scripture of God's word, two from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah, and one from the New Testament. So beginning in the Old Testament in the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, the seventh chapter of Isaiah, those familiar words in verse 14. Isaiah spoke the word of the Lord over 700 years before the birth of Christ. And he prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Over 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah prophesied that a child would be born And that child would be known as God with us. Now, as you're still in the book of Isaiah, turn over a couple pages or three in your Bible to chapter 9. The ninth chapter of Isaiah, chapter 9, beginning at at verse 6. In chapter 9, Isaiah is telling us more about this child, this God with us. His name shall be called Emmanuel, and now Isaiah is going to give us some more names concerning this virgin-born Emmanuel and what his kingdom will ultimately be. Verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Now please turn in your Bibles to the New Testament to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 4 at verse 4. Where Isaiah was looking forward over 700 years to the birth of Christ, now in Galatians, the Apostle Paul is looking back just a few years, maybe 40, 50 years at the most, and he writes these words in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, just a few years after the event of God's perfect timing. Paul looks back to the Christ event, to when a virgin bore a child and called his name Emmanuel. Verse 4 of Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, and we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, as we seek understanding of what you want us to know, what you want us to understand, and what you want us to apply to our hearts and to our lives, we ask that your Holy Spirit would make Emmanuel real to us. Let us know and experience what it means to have God with us. And for this we pray in Emmanuel's name our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I did something this last week that I said I would never do. Never do, not going to do it. People try to talk me into it every year. I'm not going to do it. 
I went shopping on Good Friday. Black Friday, yeah. Boy, I just... <laughs> I'm going to have the puppet come up and read it this time. <laughs> Our microwave oven went out a couple of weeks ago, and Buy Mart had one on sale, and I checked on Consumer Reports, and it was a good one. And it was only on sale on Friday and Saturday. They were going to open up at 5 o'clock in the morning. There's no way I was going to do that. I've seen Friday or 5 o'clock in the morning more times from the other side than I've seen it from the, the early side. But I thought it would be good timing. So about 9 o'clock when I got up and around, I braved Black Friday and I went out and I went to the store. It seemed like perfect timing and timing was crucial in this thing before they ran out. Well, they had lots of them stacked there and they weren't very busy by that time. I asked one of the checkers, how'd morning go? And she, oh, it's just really been good. Lots of friendly people coming in. It was just a totally different experience than I expected or seen on TV. <laughs> so without any distress whatsoever, I went to the store about nine o'clock, talked to a lot of nice people and returned home very quickly with the microwave in hand. And it seemed to be pretty good timing. Time and timing are very important concepts. The Christmas shoppers have come to believe that if they don't line up outside the store ahead of time, get there before everybody else, then they're not going to be able to get what they're after. Is that what the timing of Christmas is all about? Lining up at stores the night before sometimes, getting the best deals, busy schedules and nerve-wracking plans because Christmas is coming. A four-year-old girl noticed the rest of her family's frustration throughout one particular December day as they made preparations for Christmas. She observed her mother sigh when she received an unexpected present in the mail. And she heard her mother's response, Now we'll have to go out and buy them something in return. Where will we find the time? And then she noticed that her dad was frustrated over the mail, including the email cards from semi-close friends, and he thought, oh, now I'm going to have to reciprocate with an email card to them, and I, I just don't have time for that. And in this particular family, it was family tradition at night to, to pray the Lord's Prayer before they went, she went to bed at night. That night, the little girl knelt beside her bed as her parents watched, and she uttered those familiar words as best she understood them. Forgive us our Christmases as we forgive those who Christmas against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from email. <laughs> so please turn to the fourth chapter of Galatians once again. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In this fourth chapter of Galatians, we see that God's timing is always perfect. God makes all things beautiful in his time, as we sang this morning. God is not stressed out. God is not hurried or harried about Christmas. And that Christmas is not about what we can get done or not get done, but it's all about what God has done and how we respond to what God has done. Verse 4 of Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here we see God's perfect timing for Christmas. The when. When. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Now, in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, there are two words for time. There's the word kairos, which means opportune time. 
You seize an opportunity that comes your way, sometimes quite by accident. You make the most of the time or the opportunities that you have. I wanted to go to Bymart in the Kairos of time, just the right time, so I could get what I was after with the least amount of frustration or, or difficulty before they sold out. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, the right Kairos, Christ died for the ungodly. At the opportune time, Christ died for our sins on the cross. Then there's a second word in the Greek language. It's chronos. We get our word chronology from it. Chronos refers to the orderly progression of events when something follows the proper sequence and is exactly right. And the word used in Colossians 4.4 is chronos, in the fullness of chronos. It's indicating that God just didn't decide on the spur of the moment to take advantage of an opportune time. He orchestrates the opportune times. He orchestrates all the chronology to make that opportune time. God planned and orchestrated all the sequence of events, and when the time was right, according to his predetermined plan, he sent his only begotten son into the world. For thousands of years... God orchestrated history, he orchestrated events for the Son to be born in the fullness of time. Over 700 years before Jesus was born, God proclaimed through the prophet Isaiah, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. You know, the sin, the depravity, the evil of humankind and what's going on in this world doesn't catch God off guard. God knows what ISIS is up to. God knows how that's all going to turn out in the Middle East. He knows what you're going through. He knows what I'm going through. He knows what he's going to do in even those events. You know, God doesn't watch human events the same way we watch Fox News to try to determine what we're going to do next or what should be done next. Nothing catches God by surprise. He knew before the foundation of the world, before he created thing one, that he would send his son into the world to die for our sins. Before he created me, before he created you, he knew that he would send his son into the world to die for you. I would have thought, oh, I, I'm not going to do that. But God knew. He orchestrated. And for thousands of years, God has been at work in his time, with his perfect timing. He knew that magi from the east would roll into Jerusalem on a particular day. And they'd have to stop and ask for directions. Roll down the window of their camel or whatever that is and, and ask for directions. And that those directions would be looked up in the prophet Micah. Written over 400 years before the Magi rolled into Jerusalem. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah... For from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. From the days of eternity. So how does it come to be, as God worked in the orchestration of time and timing, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, as God said? Well, along came a Roman ruler by the name of Caesar Augustus. The August one, he called himself. 
the majestic one. He mistakenly believed that he was the ruler of all people, and he was the God of all peoples. All things were in his power. But the august one needed more money to run his kingdom. So what does every august one do when they need more money? They raise taxes. So he sent out a decree that a census be taken of all the inhabited world. Get everybody on the tax rolls. that sound familiar? And how do you make sure that everybody is registered, that you didn't miss somebody or a lot of somebody's? They have to go to the city from which they originated, their family came from. So a man by the name of Joseph, who was betrothed to a, a young woman by the name of Mary, Joseph had been from his family from, uh, from Bethlehem, but he was living in Nazareth at the time, so he returned to his own city, Bethlehem. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, just as God had determined, exact place, exact time, exact birth, according to his time and plan. But Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says it wasn't just timing or time, it was the fullness of time. The plethora of time. Time had been filled up. All of God's things, all things in God's timing have been completed. This is the time. John Stott, in his commentary on Galatians, writes Why is the period of Christ's coming termed the fullness of time? Various factors combine to make it such. For instance, it was the time when Rome had conquered and subdued the known inhabited earth. When Roman roads had been built to facilitate travel and Roman legions had been stationed to guard them. It was also the time when the Greek language and culture had given a certain cohesion to society. At the same time, the old mythological gods of Greece and Rome were losing their hold on the common people. So that hearts and minds of men everywhere were hungry for a religion that was real and satisfying. Further was the time when the law of Moses had done its work in preparing men for Christ, holding them under its tutelage and under its prison so that they longed ardently for the freedom with which Christ could make them free, unquote. In other words, it was the perfect time orchestrated by God for God's Son to come into the world and die on the cross and for the gospel to be taken into the whole world. The Greeks under Alexander the Great and then the Romans had built a network of roads, a network of world, roads mostly to transport their troops and to supply their troops, but also for trade and commerce, which connected the whole world. God, through the apostles, used those roads to take the gospel into the world. Alexander the Great, in an attempt to unite his kingdom by having one language, instituted what's called Koine Greek, common Greek, the language of commerce, the language of trade, the language of government, which everybody in the civilized world used. God used this language, Koine Greek, in the writing of his New Testament and in the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world. It was the fullness of time. God perfectly orchestrated his time, even to the point of using such godless men as Alexander the Great, Augustus Caesar, who had their own selfish interest in mind. In Israel, at the time, it was called the time of messianic expectation, the great expectation of the Messiah coming. The common people of the day were fed up with the hypocrisy of the ruling religious aristocracy, the hypocritical religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. The common people had had enough of that. 
But the superficiality of the religious life among them had not dampened their hope for the coming Messiah, the coming of the one prophesied by the prophets of old. For hundreds of years, they had been waiting for the fulfillment of the promise of God. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. For hundreds of years, this is what they anticipated. This is what they expected. This is what they yearned for. In fact, it was a common prayer. Whenever a baby girl was born, the parents prayed that she would grow up to bear the Messiah of God. That was their expectation. For hundreds of years, they had been waiting. But God is never late. God is never hurried or harried. He's always on time. He never misses a deadline, and his timetable is always correct. When? In the fullness of time. What? Verse 4, Galatians chapter 4, God sent forth. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. Several times the New Testament refers to God sending his Son, and I want us to pause there for a minute in the text just to think about that word sent for a moment. Because it reveals the motivation of the Father. The word translated sent is the Greek word ex apostello. Ex apostello. Now you might recognize the root word apostello. Does that sound familiar? Apostello means to be sent out. To be sent out for a particular purpose, for a mission. The noun form is apostolos. Apostle. An apostolos is one who is sent out for that particular purpose and mission. The 12 apostles are the sent out ones who were commissioned by Jesus to go out into the world and preach the gospel. When God sent his son, though the word is not just apostello, there's a prefix in front of apostello. It's the two letters in our language, E-K, or if you know Greek, epsilon kappa, ek apostello. And the ek means from out of. Ex apostello, the son was sent out from. Not just sent out, but sent out from. And from where was he sent? Of course, we know he was sent from heaven's glories. From eternity past, the son had enjoyed the glories of heaven and was co-eternal and co-equal God of very God, one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit. I noticed the new little pamphlet that came from Discovery House this week. Uh, is, is, God, is Jesus God? And that's, that's a really a good question. So if you want to read all these scripture passages that I don't have time for this morning, it's really cool. Because that's how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And who is this word? Who is the one who is God and was with God, who has come into this world? John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And John says, We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The child born 
unto a virgin and laid in a manger was God in human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. God of very God. God from all eternity past. I don't know if it was just me when I was a kid, but I would lay in bed at night and think, I'm going to think back into the past as far as I can go. <laughs> you know, go through all the Bible stories I'd heard or whatever, go back, you know, caveman, who was the name of that cartoon that we always had, the caveman, you know, back, <laughs> back, you know, back, back, back. And it just blew my mind every time to think back. Go back as far as you can. There is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Go as far as you can into the future. There is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And why did God the Father send God the Son into the world? What was the motivation? What was the purpose? For, for what reason would the Son leave that fellowship and that perfection and that glory to come to a crummy place like this? You know, if you've ever been transferred in your job and you find out where it's at, you go, oh, I don't know if I go there. You know, multiply that a zillion times and, and you might have something of what's going on here. What was the proper, what was the father's motivation? What was the son's motivation? First John 4, 9 says, by this, the love of God was manifested. By this, the love of God was made known to us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him, so that we might have life, so that we might have eternal life, we might have abundant life, we may have life as God gives it to us. God sent out his son because he loves you and because he loves me. God was motivated by his love for us. And have you ever really thought of that? Take that as deep as you can go to eternity past, eternity future. What does it mean that, that God loves us this much? It means at least of one thing, that motivated by his love for us, God wants to have fellowship with you. God wants to spend eternity with you. Of all the creatures he could have created, of all the people he could have created, he wants to spend all of eternity as far as we can think and beyond into eternity with you. And why did God send forth his son? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When in the fullness of time what God the Father sent forth out of heaven's glories, who? God's son. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. One man sent his parents a microwave oven for Christmas. This must be a microwave morning. And he recalled the experience this way. He wrote, quote, They were excited that now they too could be part of the instant generation. But when they unpacked the microwave and plugged it in, with literally within seconds, the microwave transformed two smiles into frowns. Even after reading the directions, they couldn't make it work. Two days later, my mother was playing bridge with a friend and confessed her inability to get their microwave oven even to boil water. To get this silly thing to work, she exclaimed, I really don't need better directions. I just need my son to come along with the gift. Unquote. Unlike all other religions in the world where their gods send a set of directions, 
God, our God, sends his son. Paul Harvey told the story about a family on Christmas Eve, and this family had a tradition where the mother and the children would go to the Christmas Eve service, and the father would stay home and read his paper. When the family returned home from church, they'd all gather to open up their presents. Now, the father was not a bad man. He was not an evil man. But he just couldn't believe in the childhood stories anymore of God coming as a baby laid in a manger. As the family left for church, he opened up his evening paper and began to read by the fireplace. Suddenly heard a tapping on the window. It was a bird flying against the glass of the window trying to get out of the snow and into the warmth of the home. The man had compassion on the bird and he went outside hoping that he could coax it in. He could bring it in somehow. But as he approached the bird, the bird just flew against the window even harder, trying to get away from him. And pretty soon, the bird flew into the bushes below the window, half frozen, yet too afraid to be caught by this huge man. The more the man tried to reach for the bird, the more the bird frantically flew around in the snow and the thorns of the bushes. After a few minutes in the cold and seeing the bird continuing to injure itself, the man yelled out in frustration, Stupid bird, can't you understand that I'm trying to help? The man paused and thought, If only you could understand, you wouldn't fly away. If only, if only I could become a bird and get you to understand. Just then, the church bells rang on Christmas Eve. And when the man heard the bells this time, he fell to his knees and began to cry, saying, Oh God, I didn't understand. Oh God, I didn't understand. And that brings us to the why. Why did God send forth his son, born under the law? Verse 5 of Galatians chapter 4. It says, so that, whenever you see those two words, so that, in your Bibles, it means purpose, it means reason. So that, here is the reason, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, Harry Belafonte sings, Hark, now hear the angels sing, a new king born today, and man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Now, here's the bad news related to that song. The last two lines of that song are not true. They are not true. Man does not live forevermore because of Christmas Day. We know that it's not Christmas Day that brings salvation because of the word law, which appears in verse 4 and in verse 5 of Galatians chapter 4. The Son was born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law. See, everyone born into this world is born under the law. The law is given by God. Now, some people, in confusing legalism with the Old Testament law, think that the law is a bad thing whenever we talk about the law. All those rules and regulations, all those do's and don'ts, and thou shalt nots and thou shalts. But the psalmist declared unto God in Psalm 119, verses 97 and 98, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. There's another psalm, and every young person should know this. The law of God makes me wiser than my teachers. Now, don't tell your teachers that if you study the law of God, but that's what the law does to us. The 119th psalm, the psalmist said in verse 7, 
The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The problem was not with the law. It is perfect. The problem is, even though the law is perfect, it is to be loved. It is to be obeyed. And every human being in this world is born into this world as a lawbreaker because we don't have what it takes to keep the law except Jesus Christ who was perfect and was without sin. God said this is the law. These are the commandments. It is to be obeyed. It is to be followed. This is righteousness. This is holiness. The problem is we can't live up to it. Look back in chapter 3 of Galatians, the third chapter of Galatians, verse 10. Because Paul has already dealt with this whole problem in the book of Galatians, so we have to go back and, and see what the solution was. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many are the works of the law, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. We are all born under a curse, an innate inability to keep the law, and therefore we are cursed. We are born cursed because we are lawmakers, because we are sinners. When was the last time you heard a heartwarming Christmas movie or message on the curse of Christmas? But there is a curse related to Christmas. And to our modern and sensitive ears, these words sound crude. They sound harsh. How can you talk about this at Christmas? We like to think of a God who blesses rather than the God who curses. But the law, what the law says, God says. What the law blesses, God blesses. And what the law curses, God curses. And there's no reason to be stunned at these words because they express what Scripture tells us everywhere about God in relation to sin. Namely, that no person can sin with impunity. God is not a sentimental Father Christmas who gives out gifts no matter what. He is the righteous judge of sin, the righteous judge of men. Disobedience always brings us under the curse of God and exposes us to the awful penalties of his judgment. So if the blessing of God brings justification in life, the curse of God brings condemnation and death. That's what it means to be born under the law. It applies to everyone who has been born to this earth. That's the bad news. But drop down to verse 13 because there is good news. Verse 13 of, of Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The one who hangs on a tree, obviously that's referring to crucifixion, is cursed because he's a convicted lawbreaker who is paying the penalty for his sins, for breaking the law. But Jesus redeems us. Now we come to that great concept of redemption. Verses 4 and 5 of Galatians chapter 4 again, back to the fourth chapter, verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The word translated redeemed or redemption means to buy up, as in rescue from loss. 
In Jesus' day, you could redeem a person by buying them off the slave block and setting them free. He or she was a slave because they owed a debt they could not pay. That's called a bond slave. They'd owed so much money or so much they couldn't ever pay it back. So they had to sell themselves, as it were, to their owner. And they were under that ownership until their debt was paid. Now, as a slave, you don't make any wages. How are you going to pay the debt? You know, they've got to find some way to pay the debt. But... You know, somebody comes along, pays your debt, buys you off the slave block, and then the buyer can either set you free, that's redemption, or make you his slave. Seldom, if ever, did anyone ever free a slave. In fact, half of the people in the Roman Empire in Jesus' day were slaves. Half were slaves. Some hoping to redeem themselves by somehow finding a way to buy their own freedom. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sins. He paid your sin debt that you could not pay. The wages of sin is what? Death. And Jesus paid that when he died on the cross. He redeemed us and set us free. And I love the picture that's portrayed in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. This is one of my favorite scripture passages. When a bond slave was finally able to pay off his debt, or somebody paid it off for him, the word canceled was written across the certificate of, of, uh, of debt in big letters. Canceled. Then they would take that certificate, they would post it in a public place for all to see that that debt was canceled, that somebody paid that. And Colossians 2.14 says that when Jesus died on the cross, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Why? Because it demanded our bondage and sometimes our death. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross... He took every one of our certificates of debt, the debt we could not pay, the debt we owed because of our sin, and with his blood he wrote, canceled across that and posted it on the cross for all to see that Jesus died for our sins, paid our debt, and set us free. And why was it hostile to us? Why were those decrees hostile to us? Because we were born under the curse of the law, and it demanded our death. The Lord Jesus redeems us from the curse that awaits us as lawbreakers by taking the curse upon himself. And that's why you can't understand Christmas without Calvary. You can't understand Christmas without the cross of Calvary. You can't understand the babe in the manger without understanding that he came to bear the curse that we deserve. You know, it's absolutely incredible but leave it up to culture and society, how much Christmas has been watered down. And a watered-down Christmas presents a watered-down message. And a watered-down message is incapable of helping people understand the gospel and their need for salvation. How in the world are shoppers at Christmas going to find out that they are not fine? That they really have no reason to be merry, no reason to be jolly or ring bells, as long as they think that man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Man will live forevermore. Everybody born into this world has already been given life forever in that regard. The question is, where will man live forever? 
with God in heaven or without God in hell? And can we determine that we are going to heaven and not to hell on the strength of what we find in the manger? Only when we recognize and accept and believe that what we find in the manger is the Christ of Calvary. Jesus who died for our sins. Jesus who released us from the curse of the law. I think it was John Stott that put it this way. He who is God's son by nature becomes a servant in time so that we who are servants to sin might discover the wonderful privilege of being redeemed and adopted into God's family. And so I close with the glorious concept of adoption. could spend six weeks on adoption. It's such a neat thing as we see it in Scripture. Verse 5 of Galatians chapter 4 again and then into verse 6. So that, we, that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God's purpose in orchestrating all of history and all of human events for his purposes was both to redeem us and to adopt us. That's why Christ died for us. Think about this for a moment. What it means to be adopted into God's family and be one of his children. Up until Jesus came into the world, God's family consisted of whom? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfect in unity, perfect in fellowship, without need, perfect perfection, not lacking anything, perfect. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. To us, it might seem a little shy at a Thanksgiving dinner or whatever, that that's all the family is. But it was perfect family, perfect unity, perfect in all ways. That was it. No one else. One perfect family. But now Christ, with his blood, has purchased us off the slave block of sin, and we are adopted into his family with all the rights, with all the privileges, with all the blessings, with all the promises, etc., thereto, forwith, and all that kind of stuff. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And as a pledge or a guarantee that God keeps his promises that we will forever be his family, God sent forth his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of his Son into our hearts cries, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic. It's, it's much like daddy. Abba, it carries the love and affection of the word daddy, but with the respect that is deserved of a father. Abba, father. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16 echoes this. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit gives you the absolute certainty and assurance that you're one of his beloved children through Jesus Christ. You've been redeemed. You've been adopted into his family forever. Shall we pray? Father, when I think of timing and time, I also think of the words of the Apostle Paul where he says, now is the day of salvation. Now is the appropriate time. 
Father, there was a time in, in the lives of many of us when we came to that appropriate moment, that opportune time, that orchestrated time, where God presented the gospel to us, and by faith, we received Jesus Christ into our hearts, into our lives, and knew the forgiveness of sin. Father, this may be that time for someone who is here this morning, and I pray that the gospel message, the gospel has been made clear to their hearts and to their minds, but I also know that it is your Holy Spirit who works in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. And Father, as we come into this Christmas time, Father, I pray for those opportune times orchestrated by you. We would be blessed, we would be privileged to be used of you in something that we say and something that we tell people about, about the gospel, about Jesus, about something about what we call the real meaning of Christmas, Father, that once again you would bring men and women and boys and girls to you in salvation. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.